if the data isn't accessible to all these different systems, you're not going to be playing in this field eventually. It's going to take time, but we're seeing already customers asking, I want access to my data. I want this in my own cloud. I want to have it structured in a way that is understandable with enough metadata that I understand what I'm looking at. Not a naming convention, not just raw, unstructured data, but give me the data in a manner that I can use it and I can understand relationships, attributes, connect it to those other sources, bring it into, and this is where BIM and Digital Twin will come in eventually, bring it into these systems and, and really connect not just one part of a building, but the finance of a building, the maintenance of a building, everything. Digitize my asset. Allow me to do management remotely. You are listening to the Beyond Buildings podcast, where we talk to innovative leaders on how they create optimal value in a smart world context. We combine strategy and technology talk to absorb reality, embrace uncertainty, and to go from path dependency to path creation. It's smart cities, it's smart buildings, it's data strategies, it's construction, it's real estate and industry 4.0, and most of all, it's smart people. And remember, it's the data you don't have that will change your life. With your host, the future shaper, the ecosystem architect, Nicholas Wern. This episode is sponsored by Platform of Trust. I like Platform of Trust because it enables companies to create value from any type of data. Therefore, it saves time, money, and it's the perfect tool for companies who want to make data-driven decisions on data they can trust. They make it easy to collect, harmonize, and trust the data from different sources and basically any source that you want. And you don't need to hire 10 IT technicians or spend hundreds of thousands for a cloud platform because Platform of Trust can manage integrations and you'll see if something goes down in real time. Platform of Trust enables companies to take action based on the data that you can trust. Today, not tomorrow. In this episode of the Beyond Buildings podcast, we talk to the almost all-knowing building automation guru Tyson Sauter. Tyson is the global business development manager working with all digitalization aspects of buildings at Siemens. In this episode, we get answers to these questions. How do we bring non-technical people into the technical decision-making process? Where to start with smart buildings? Which companies are the big four? And how did Australia become a hotbed for building automation innovation? What is holding people back? And what is the hardest thing to achieve for the performance of portfolio buildings? The drawbacks with consultancy and audits? What sustainability means? What are the drivers? And is anyone interested in CO2 anymore? This is a must-listen for anyone and everyone interested in where the world will be in the years to come. Not limited to the world of building automation and smart buildings, but the world at large. Moving from where we are now to where we need to be is important for everyone. Go above and beyond with the Beyond Buildings podcast. Welcome to the Beyond Buildings podcast. Let's get to it. Who are you, Tyson? <laughs> well, I'm uh, Tyson Suter. So I'm originally from Australia. I now live in Switzerland working for Siemens in their headquarters. I started in this industry when fresh out of school and, and I stumbled into air conditioning and refrigeration, actually. So I did a trade and it's quite funny that I got into it because a friend of mine was working in that industry and he came home and we had a couple of drinks and he was explaining that he had to do some programming for air conditioning, which was very confusing to me, not knowing anything about the industry. And it was in visual basics. I knew a little bit. So this is how I got into the industry through air conditioning. And that's my study. 
but I really got into automation straight away. So from straight away, did eight or nine years installing air conditioning systems, automation systems, really going from basic controls to full commercial building shopping centers and doing maintenance, doing air conditioning service calls. It was, it was a great experience. And then I took a bit of a risk and joined a startup called Bueno, Bueno Systems, based in Australia. I was employee number two or three. can't remember now, but that grew to over 70 at one stage. Um, I still have very close connections with everyone there. Great company. In my opinion, one of the leading data analytics and providers in the world by far. I think that's when I got to know you, right? I think you were at Bueno at the time and you were in Australia at the time as well. Yep. And I was running the integrations team, doing all their sales and getting data out of buildings and lifelong friendships from that company. I still talk to many of them daily, but I got to a point where I wanted to expand my knowledge and I joined a company called Willow, which is a digital twin company. The good thing about Willow is that they have this great presence in the digital engineering. So they really deliver projects, deliver BIM projects. They audit these projects and and they'd been doing this for a while. They do everything from doing 3D designs, but they made a new team to create an operational twin, a digital twin, a platform for a building. They're coming from the construction space. So like beam coordination side, that kind of thing. Yep. And they got some software people from the fintech industry and they brought these people together. Yeah. Incredible people. They're really, really, really smart people. Great team. Global team now. They're growing quite rapidly. Partnerships with Microsoft. They've done some really incredible things. I was there for just around a year and I actually got the offer to join Siemens, which is something that I've always wanted to do, uh, join one of these big, I call them the big four in the automation industry. Yeah, This is my first passion. Who are the other ones? I mean, you got Siemens and then you have... Siemens, Schneider, Johnson's, Honeywell. I would say Tritium should be up there. They're owned by Honeywell now. Yeah. Tritium's a fan, like I, that's my background as well. I'm, I'm more focused on Tritium, but these are the major players in the automation industry. You have others, of course, up and comers, but they're more new. DizTech, EasyIO, who were recently purchased by Johnson's. There's so many. And then there's a lot of in, in Europe as well. But so joining Siemens, I joined the, technically my role is the global business development manager, digitalization. So I've had all the buzzwords in my job titles. Wow. Yeah. So your area is global then? or Yes, global responsibility. I work in the building performance and sustainability team. So we focus on energy savings projects, but predominantly what I do is the digital version of these projects. So predictive maintenance, data analytics, fault detection, selling services wrapped around all these great terms. These terms can be very misleading in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. But if you bundle them together, there's services there. There's value there. And that's that's what we do. Yeah. So who are the typical customers? Is it like this uh, airport type style or it's, it's, it's factories, industry, yeah. commercial real estate, mostly hospitals? See the patterns. You always break them up into sections. The first adopters, for whatever reason, is complex campus style buildings, hospitals, airports, shopping centers, where you have it, the complexity comes from scale and mixed systems yeah. office buildings they eventually come in but they're usually driven by bottom line value selling really focusing on reduce my costs yeah. everyone is of course but there is a shift we're seeing now i would say in the last three to five years people talk about co2 reduction they care about it they really want to to focus on this and you get all these big enterprise customers they've got these co2 carbon neutral targets 
by 2030, even 2025, 2050. Yeah. There's a huge list of these corporations and it's not just buying green energy. It's, okay, let's do these big scale investment projects where we replace equipment, but also let's just optimize what we have, not rely on baseline of previous years. Let's look at this equipment. And the best way to do this is through digital solutions. You can do consulting, you can do audits, but it's not scalable. It doesn't provide the transparency and you're putting all your eggs into the the basket of individuals. So the digital solution allows scale, allows that transparency, allows consistency, which is I think the most important part, consistency of performance is the hardest thing to be able to achieve for a portfolio of buildings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's super interesting. And I, I mean, I love that stuff about Willow as well, because I know that they built, tried to build that app store for buildings kind of concept and that platform for buildings to innovate through the whole life cycle and these kind of things, right? I love that digital twins, all these kind of things, right? Just a specific question regarding that, both in terms of sustainability in tying more metrics than just CO2. What sustainability means for you, I guess, and, and not just like the energy efficiency side, but are there even more aspects? And also what you think about, well, digital twins during the operating phase, because I know that transition going from the BIM construction or like actually BIM into the operating phase, that has been challenging for most companies. And do you see that someone has actually managed to do that kind of things today? From your perspective? Yeah, I'll do the sustainability one first. Is yeah. To me, it's not just about efficiency of, of equipment or energy. It's design principles. It's 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 installing stuff, systems that are going to be long-lasting. We're not going to look at uh, upgrading equipment quickly. We're going to install materials that are effective. And then, but it's also educating people what this means. Sustainability was nearly a dirty word in the building industry for many years. You usually have like your operations team and then there'll be like a very small sustainability team that are trying to influence this operations team. But this is shifting because now the customers care. And if a tenant understands what sustainability means, they're going to care and they're going to care more and more. And that means engagement, education, understanding what sustainability means as in it's everything from the how you build a building not at the lowest cost price, but yeah. really design it effectively. It's about how you interact people within that office space, have open plan, maybe not seating, but places where people can go, green areas, green rooftops. It's it's not it's really about how does this work with the people within the building, but as a sustainable, as energy efficient, yeah. as conscious of the environment as it can be. And the environment doesn't mean energy only. It does mean making sure that you're not destroying landscape around your area, yeah. creating landscape that people can utilize. So it's, it's really important. I think this is great that when people are aware, they, they see these things and they care more and maybe they put more pressure on the owners or the system integrators or whoever is trying or not trying to keep the building in tip-top shape, right? But from an Australian perspective, I've heard good things about how they moved from where they were and where they are today. And also, I think like you mentioned that prior to starting the call, how also that spurred a lot of innovation and startups coming from that space. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on how to create that awareness for the people in these issues. Yeah, totally. And the success that Australia's seen is we have a system called Neighbours. And Neighbours is a energy efficiency rating system, has to be done every year, has to be done by an independent consultant. And it is completely fair on energy efficiency per square meter. It's more complex than that, but to simplify it, that's what it means. You can't buy points. You really can't avoid it. It just is. It's a really tough system. 
what this has done is if you look at all the startups in our industry, a large portion of them, or a lot of the, the first that come out in this area were Australian. And that's because of this rating system. It created an industry that required services to exist. It got to the point where some of these buildings, you're tuning them so much that if you miss one day of poor operation, that means they might lose their star rating, which that could directly impact their lease rates. They write this into the commercial lease agreements. Um, if you're below certain ratings, companies, big corporations, governments will not lease your building. So wow. it becomes directly connected to lease. And that's where, the, that's where people start really caring. These standards are so important. That's why you look at some of the other ones up and coming. I think health and well-being in your environment, especially in our current situation, that's going to be quite important because to educate people on particulates in the air and the yeah. CO, I mean, like, okay, let's, no one that, cares. But exactly, one star, two star, Michelin star. I mean, that kind of stuff is super interesting, right? And people that, want to be able to look at their building. Allows and go, them to pay more for that building. Yeah, I mean, a three star building. What are you in a one star? Come on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Competition is good. Yeah, but that gamification aspect is super interesting. It always works. Because that's who we are, like ingrained in our, our, our DNA, I guess, like all over the world, right? But I've never heard about this before. I've never heard about the neighbor system. I've never heard about, well, any about this before because, yeah, I don't know why. But I mean, like it makes so much sense. I think like to drive this from a national perspective. So how did this start? How did it, was it a national initiative as in a government initiative? Or was it like a startup trying to do this and just got momentum? Or how did it actually start? This is pushing the memory, but definitely it started from a <laughs> consultancy based in Canberra. I think the name was Exegy. It, quite funnily, like the CEO or the managing director of this company, brilliant engineer, name slipping my mind right now, but he, he created with his team this neighbors rating. And then the government got involved and then started saying this is a requirement. A lot of those people that worked at Exigy ended up leaving and starting companies like Bueno and yeah. all these other things. So it was a very, very, very technical team that created the rating system and then they influenced government policy. Super interesting. Yeah. yeah, and commercial office buildings, you just see that it's on the front of every building and people, the people leasing them started caring. Yeah. So it just became, you have to do this now. It proves that you need some sort of governance to push these things. Yeah, like a yardstick as well, right? How to measure these buildings with each other and also getting the governance structure in place and how to do this and how to formalize it. I think that's super, super important. What is your the comparison then to LEED or BREAM or well-being standards as well? I mean, I, I see that they're being done for some locations. And then, of course, like that can mean an increase in rent from an owner's perspective or and all these kind of things. But I don't see it as prevalent as when you're talking about neighbor systems, right? Do you have an idea why that is from your perspective? Yeah, you see these other tools, which I think are, are very good stepping stones to where they need to be. Um, but it's because they haven't had the government support. If people don't need to do it, they're not going to. If it doesn't affect their bottom line, it doesn't affect the lease rates, it doesn't increase the value of a building, they're not going to do it. Now, if you have governance, if you have some sort of enforcement of this, these rating systems directly impact the value of a building. There's many studies done in Australia around this. And what we need to see, and I think the EU is putting together this initiative of, around you know, reporting and sustainability. This is really good. What is that? What was it called? Energy Efficiency Initiative, but it's, it's something like this. 
There's too many acronyms. Uh, so, but anyway, acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> I mean, those are interesting. And again, like to get it for a national, I mean, European perspective, of course, is interesting. But I mean, there's always like the regional, local, national loopholes that no one really cares about anything. I think it's definitely interesting as a concept. And again, like revolves around our nature as people that we want to do these things and we most of us want to be better than the next one and i think that this could spur something because when i'm talking about like smart city initiatives and and these kind of things as well like gamification is of course a huge aspect and there were cities they want to be put on the map they want to be seen as well doing well for their citizens and all these kind of things but i'm also like these smart city rankings which i think you've seen before as well like they can mean anything and everything, right? I mean, like I think like Gothenburg at some point was like the world's most advanced smart city, which is not, of course, it's not <laughs> by any means, but maybe to some certain metrics it is, right? But I think like getting this sort of standardized and providing whatever star rating it could be is super interesting. You can even link that back to the smarter city thing, an award for a smart building doesn't mean that these things, these buildings or these cities are smart, but what that does is it brings them recognition. Yeah. So that actually reinforces the behavior to say, we need to invest in this because this was such a success to us. There's so many examples of these highlight buildings that they might not be the smartest in the world, but what they've done well is they've created a message to motivate people to want to invest in it. And to me, that's just a positive. Yeah. Even if you don't agree that it's, it is, it deserves those, those credentials. It doesn't matter because we're moving towards the common goal of more efficient buildings, more transparency in our buildings, and really saying we can do this better. Yeah. What we're doing today, we can just do this better. Of course, I disagree, but of course, I agree as well, right? I mean, that it doesn't matter. But uh, no, I agree what you mean. I mean, it, because it's all about the industry getting the industry to do this kind of thing and have that as a North Star and the stuff is actually happening. And even if it's just for show, maybe at the beginning then or whatever, it's starting to happen something and people are getting awareness. And I think that's what it's all about. You can see a shift though. Even big corporations are now that are asking the question, like, how can we do this with digital solutions? Like people are coming to us to say, help us solve problems. Every company now working in buildings that they're moving closer and closer to where they should be. And if you go back 10 years, talking about fault detection and data analytics in the cloud, people would laugh in your face nearly. I see you've got the home automation market where it's small, it's open, it's all about interacting with third-party systems. And you want your lights to talk to your security system. Everything has to talk. It has to be open, has to be flexible, has to be very, very easy to use. Yeah. And then you have at the, the other end of the market where it has to be reliable. doesn't have to be, but it's very complex. Um, it, it, you have to be highly skilled. It's an industry. Like you need to be trained to install this, maintain this, and historically been proprietary in, in our industry. Not so, doesn't play well with others. In the middle, we're starting to see these smaller companies, and some of them are bigger than others, like Tritium, like EasyIO, like J2. What they've been successful in is saying, "Hey, we can be the connection between the ease to use, the highly open, the flexibility, and the reliability." So what they're trying to solve is that the new breed of market where they're saying, we want to bring these worlds together. I think there's always going to be some disconnecting gap between these two, just because the systems and the complexity, but to replace the equipment or technology in a building, sometimes it's a 30-year life cycle. So <laughs> that's going to slow us down no matter what. You don't have the innovation possible to decimate an industry overnight. It takes a long time. But what we're seeing now is semantic modeling, tagging, haystack, brick, 
these things that you start talking about, the interoperability between devices, between data, that will be the leveler on the playing fields. Automation system is the heart of a commercial office building or office building. The airport is the most data in there. But if it's unable to talk to these other systems, if you don't have some sort of base building network, if you don't have some sort of modern IT infrastructure to connect the IT and OT, if the data isn't accessible to all these different systems, you're not going to be playing in this field eventually. It's going to take time, but we're seeing already customers asking, I want access to my data. I want this in my own cloud. I want to have it structured in a way that is understandable with enough metadata that I understand what I'm looking at. Not a naming convention, not just raw, unstructured data, but give me the data in a manner that I can use it and I can understand relationships, attributes, connect it to those other sources, bring it into, and this is where BIM and Digital Twin will come in eventually, bring it into these systems and, and really connect not just one part of a building, but the finance of a building, the maintenance of a building. Yeah, all parts. Everything. Yeah. Digitize my asset. Allow me to do management remotely. But then it's not so much about realizing the full potential of buildings, even that's wonderful and we love it because we're nerds, <laughs> right? But it's more about realizing the full potential of the users exactly. in that building. I think that's what it's coming down more to now. But of course, that means that you got to do exactly what you say, right? You have to have interoperable data because you're not just looking at HVAC as a separate silo or BAS or BMS or fault detection. And again, like you want to be able to draw conclusions and decisions based on all of the data that all of the data is telling you, not just like one siloed segment. But I mean, what do you think are companies there already uh, in doing that? Is that something that the existing players, will they evolve to be able to do this fast enough? Or will it come new players that are going to do this more as a service, like the data brokering as a service, kind of like in a master systems integrator kind of way? Or what, what do you think is going to happen or is happening, I would say? I think what's happening today to fill that gap, and I think you, you really nailed it here, is you have people focusing on building the network infrastructure to allow this. That's the first problem we need to solve on all our buildings. If we have twisted pair cabling with network communications going across this, that's going to stop all digitalization. It has to be brought into modern IT network capabilities. So there's people that are doing this, and this is going to be a new building service. You'll have your electrical, you'll have your hydraulics, you'll have your architectural, then you'll have your network service, and it's going to be everything sits on this, and it's going to have to communicate over an IP layer. That's the first point. And the second step there is, and this is where we're in this middle ground now, I believe, is you'll have your master system integrators. People that are saying, You've got 15 systems, let's bring them together. That is a, a role that's expanding. Something I've done in a past life where you say, hey, we want all this data from all these systems. How do we do it? And they have, if it's already installed, it's not connected, and you end up putting together some interesting solutions. And some of them are, are, are more robust, but if you influence at a design phase, it's very easy. But if you don't, you have to put something together. What you see today is the capabilities in all the major automation systems they can bring these systems together now. They can do them already. The customers are just not engaging fully with this. We see some of them for sure. You see big hospitals and, and data centers have been doing this for a while. Critical environments are very, very, very likely to say, let's bring this together now. Let's put it all into one system. That has its own problems and merits. But while it's on, on site, we need a central storage. So this has to become easier. We need to start interacting with not just the systems, but the people. So security is a good step yeah. to interact with people. 
vertical transport or good step for interacting with people. But it's really saying, how do we bring the non-technical component of a building, people, <laughs> into the technical decision-making process? And lighting systems, there's many of these out there where we can start saying, it's not about tracking personal data. That's not about that. It's about saying, bringing that people's movement in the building, their interaction with the building into yeah. the decision-making process of running that building, which has never happened. Exactly. I mean, that's the point, right? I mean, no one has really cared about the people because they're just there to... to they're an annoyance. The HVAC system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're an annoyance, right? <laughs> exactly. That, that's a classic one. Let's say, okay, we're here right now. The customers are demanding this left, right, and center. Well, they're not, but maybe left then in the critical side. What happens then? Okay, you got all these disparate systems below, and then you have all the data, and then you're generating these insights, and you want to take action. How do you do that when you have, like, underneath the hood, so to say, a lot of disparate systems, a lot of different flavors? You got all the big four plus some other stuff. I mean, we got some IoT in there as well from some provider that doesn't do bi-directional stuff, just monitoring purposes. So two specific questions. One is, of course, like how do you change the control strategy based on this? Because that has been notoriously or infamously difficult. And you have to use the systems for proprietary technology in order to change the stuff, right? Getting data out, fair enough, not that difficult if you know what you're doing. Changing all this stuff has been difficult. And the second point, which is tied to this, is also sequencing, right? The standard-based, like in PID loop, sequencing, all of these kind of things, when you're actually doing this in a real-time building operating system kind of way, and you want to make it behave based on, well, real-time data, where people are, where they aren't, fluctuations, all of this kind of thing, does sequencing, does that still have a place in a real-time dynamic world? Or is it obsolete? Obsolescence of sequencing, question, exclamation mark. And also, like, how do you take action on all of this stuff when you have a lot of proprietary, older technology at the bottom? What do you think? This is, I think, the question that you look at the trends in today's market. Everyone wants to answer these two because you have all these <laughs> AI solutions where they want to come in and control the building directly, real time. And there's a future in this for sure. At the moment, how do we solve it? It's on-site solutions. And you look at the success of some of these companies, I won't name names here, but when they do really smart and, and, and reactive and talking about instantaneous changes based on all these systems, they're on-premise. And the reason is that it's a lot of the times the infrastructure is not there to put it all the way to the cloud and then bring it back down, which sounds ridiculous to anyone that works in cloud computing. But it's just the nature of our industry, unfortunately. But eventually, that will be 100% what happens. Today, how they do it is they bring this data locally. These controllers that they come off, people might say they're dumb, but they're powerful little computers. You can do a lot of programming on these. You can really start saying, okay, I, I want to do some really intelligent things. And there's a lot of companies having a lot of success with chiller plant controllers. And you might call them like black box solutions. But in reality, they're just smart plant controllers and they're that the next stage of automation. And I think to me, it's that's the next step. And the step above that is when we start talking about these AI closed loop optimization. There's a future there too, but I think we've still got some steps in between. So as always with our industry, the infrastructure holds us back. We really have to get it to a certain level. And you see a lot of software players come into this, into the game, and I'm always open to new ideas. That's not the point. It's saying yeah. it's hard. It's hard and it's not hard because it's technically hard. The software exists. We can do some amazing things. It's hard because yeah. getting the data in a way that 
is one understandable between all these systems. We need we need an industry wide schema and model and relationship database. I, yeah. I'm a huge proponent of Haystack. <laughs> I disagree 100% with that. So maybe that's for the next session, right? I agree on the first part that we need to be able to work on data that everyone understands that everyone can work with. Is the road to get there through one understandable, mutually beneficial, universally agreed upon no, schema we'll or standard taxonomy? Like, no, no, that's the case, right? Because or brick schema or haystack or whatever taxonomy ontology, absolutely not. I see that, of course, with the protocol wars with Lawnworks, Backnet and all these kind of things, right? It goes to some point, but it still doesn't provide the real value or interoperability or true interoperability Definitely. back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, when you're looking at BIM or digital twins, you got all these BIM wars. There's also trying to agree on what kind of standards yeah, should be yeah. there for the future. IFC standards is like this ASCII-based whatever. Yeah. You can't really change it or edit it. And it's not future-proof in the slightest. And it's also not something that everyone has agreed upon really uh, yet. So, But I still see companies that are trying to make this happen. I was in a discussion yesterday with Digital Twins and there was basically... So IFC, the standard similar to Haystack or... I mean, it's not, but file it's the same format. sort of yeah. concept. Yeah. yeah, file format is basically that it has its place in an API economy. So it's going to be there to add sort of like distinguishable factors to the data or to the metadata, Mm -hmm. but it's still going to be APIs that are going to shuffle this back and forth so that IFC or Haystack, it's just like adding value to some kind of data format, but it's not like the tool to be like the the file format for everything that is in building automation or brick or all these kind of things, right? So I think that that's a difference, but I mean... Okay, so sequencing, I don't think you did really answer Okay, so if you have a master systems integrator, take everything to one API, how do you do it today? Like, do you have to have these different vendors or like systems integrators that know Johnson controls, yeah. they know EasyIO, that know this stuff in order to do this today? Or is it that you have to rip and replace and get this updated to bring it to the next level? Or how are you doing it today? Or what is being done from your perspective? So I, I'll, I'll speak on past experience because I think that's probably the easiest way. So Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Every company has their own processes, but there's many systems today that you can start creating drivers. You can do, you can analyze protocols. You can do analysis and say, let's look at the packets and create something that translates this. This can be done today. That is the extreme. You only do that at a certain scale and it can be done. And and there's a lot of websites that offer this service and and companies that offer this service. But the way you do it with many systems is they have to be some sort of at least modern network protocol. We talk about the protocol walls all the time and how it's not ideal, but BACnet IP or BACnet MSTP, KNX, I wouldn't say LON so much, but they Modbus. These are the protocols that they're not perfect at all, but... If they're yeah. talking them, very easy to integrate to them. Yeah. And yeah. that's how you have to do yeah, it. Yeah, but that's also integrate in to get the data out. Mm-hmm. Again, getting the data out and standardizing it. I mean, Sweden doesn't really have backnet, which is, I think, is horrible. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to go into that because <laughs> I, I start crying, right? You're going to hear me sob. But I mean, like, because I think that's so important. I think that's the major difference when you look at the US or where backnet is very prevalent, that it's easier to go yeah. in, it's standardized in some kind of way. Maybe you have to do some tweaking to understand the dialects, but you still can get the data out, right? That is the point. But I mean, again, like getting the data back in, adding IoT data, which is of course a separate point as well, but changing control mm. strategies, 
with equipment that is already there. From what I've heard, at least, that's tricky. It's super difficult. Still. It's And the reason is that depending on what field controller you have, depending on who installed it, not even just company, individually who installed it, you will have different points in these controllers. And if you're writing to a set point, you're not writing to the control algorithm. And what does that set point do? It could be completely different depending on what sits on, at the end of this. So you have your inputs and outputs. What is a set point for the people who are not super techy or HVAC? So if you have like inputs and outputs of a control algorithm, so you know you mentioned PID loops, but you'll have a temperature and you'd have a set point. And the set point's the variable that you want to control to. And this could be anything for chillers to air handling units to rooms. You know, the set point on your air conditioning at home or heating at home is 23, and that's what it heats and cools to. Exactly the same methodology. That set point is linked to a programming block in that controller. And that programming block could be literally anything. And so if you're writing to just the set point, which is what you see on the BACnet network, you just see... You see inputs, you see outputs, and you see set points. You might see some extra variables on this programming block, but you might not. And that's what makes it so difficult because you're trying to write back to these controllers. You nearly have to take ownership of those controllers because if something goes wrong, if the programming is not working correctly, now you need to dive into the controller. And that's where the protocols stop being so helpful and the controller software becomes necessary. That's when you need to understand what am I dealing with? Is it Siemens? Is it Honeywell? Is it... That's the case, right? I mean, that's the proprietary aspect that no one really talks about that much, I would say, because everyone's just talking about how easy it is to get data out and open APIs and these kind of things. But once you want to change something, I think that's the difference. And it actually took me a long while <laughs> before I figured this out. So I thought like protocols were everything and back it was a savior. And I, I still love the notion of it. And I think like it definitely helps so much, especially when you see markets that haven't really adopted to BACnet or Modbus even, or any kind of standard, any kind of protocol or communication method that is easily agreed upon. But okay, fair enough. My comment to that one is, of course, what you were into, like the new modern companies claim at least that they have like this AI machine learning thing. So they don't have to go in and deep dive into the field controller because they can game the system. So it's just like, tells, well, says a lot of things to the controller. Okay, do this, this, and this. And then they can sort of like reverse engineer the expected outcome, what they want to do without actually having to touch it or actually run it in the wrong direction, but it ends up in the right place, right? And they do this for holistically for the whole system. I know about these companies, there are like a handful of them that would claim that they do it or either doing it or want to do it or trying to do it. Uh, so I think that's maybe the future in not having to dig deep deep dive into the existing systems and having to use like the skill shortage gap or like the skill set that is needed for those specific controllers, et cetera, et cetera. But one, like the final point then and my other question or like the second part is sequencing. So if you have this real-time dynamics and you have like these complex buildings, let's say hospitals right now where you have IoT sensors and hospital beds and equipment moving anywhere and everywhere. You want to have like air pressure and you see something like an outbreak of COVID here. You want to shut that portion down. Does sequencing still make sense or does it have to be something else that can do these things in real time? Or I think on-site, on-premise yeah. solutions for these critical environments are still the majority and yeah. they provide reliability. They provide fail-safe. You can have multiple controllers backing each other up. 
I think at the moment, they have to be the solution for these critical environments. But when you say on-site, on-premise, I think like here that you don't mean, well, that, you, that you're that you saying that it couldn't be or as is as modular if it was going back to forth to the cloud or something like that. What do you mean? I mean, it's as close to the sensors as possible because yeah. every step you take away is another a failure point. Of course, like you want to have logic as close to the edge as possible, yep. like have an edge uh, strategy or local control first and all these kind of things, right? I definitely agree on that part. But what does that have to do with sacrificing something? Because in my world, having an edge strategy or having a data strategy, I would say, which equals or having like cloud hybrid strategy with edge local control first. And it doesn't You mean that you have to sacrifice anything. No, not at all. And I totally agree like maybe, with you. I think yeah. that's the bare minimum yeah. is the on-site, on-premise, really close to it because you want to be reliable and resiliency is key in these environments. The Absolutely. second step and what is the enabler is taking that data to the cloud and doing intelligent things with this. I'm a big believer at the moment we're at a point where we don't write back straight away. But what you do is you take the data you use machine learning, you use algorithms, regression models, and then you invest back into that local controller. That's where we differ. Not that I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I disagree that it has to go to the cloud and back because like the companies that I'm seeing coming out of Europe or whatever, they're having like distributed intelligence. So you have all that stuff, but you have it on premise. Yeah. So that's where you're writing that stuff. That's where you're doing it. So instead of going back and forth, like up to the cloud, that's where you do the logic, you push it back. It just, you do everything locally. So that's where you do regression analysis. That's where you do all these things where there are platforms to shuffle data from the edge or even from IoT nodes down to that kind of level. So you have like very, very distributed logic, even on sensor level. Then of course, on the controller level, edge gateway level, and then of course the cloud level. That's what I mean with you don't really have to sacrifice anything. You're doing all of this kind of stuff that you want to do closer to the source. And then instead of having like 100% data going back to the cloud or somewhere, you just have 5% mm. because everything is being done. More like if you look at Tesla or cars yeah, yeah, or whatever, sure. again, like for the resiliency aspect, because it can't of course be connected to the cloud at all times especially not with the logic. And then you just do some of the stuff to get the scalability issues. I fully agree with what you said. And I think the cloud is the first step you take because it allows you to scale across all types of buildings. So I think to hit the large majority of buildings, cloud makes sense, Mm -hmm. but investing and having it localized and, and making sure you have the infrastructure and the capabilities to do this as close as possible, 100% agree with you as well. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So when you say like, okay, you have a portfolio of buildings, just getting some logic out of the building into the cloud, getting like an understanding of how the building's behaving individually and also in comparison to each other and to make that decisions and making so like the triage or like the building optimization strategy, what should we focus on first? That's what you mean with going to the cloud first and getting like that piece of, then you decide on what to do. I think like that definitely have relevance. And if you, from a speed perspective and it's all like a low hanging fruit perspective, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for the call. Really appreciate it. We should definitely dig deeper into this one. I think there were a lot of golden nuggets in this talk, especially with the neighbor stuff and also how you view the world. I love it. So uh, great stuff. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Beyond Buildings podcast. And also a big thank you to our sponsor, Platform of Trust. For those of you who want to collect, harmonize and trust data from anywhere in the world and make sense of it in a much, much faster way than ever before. Thank you.